And thanks to Cryo Malt, supplying premium malt for 25 years. This is Radio Brews News. My name's Pete Mitchum, not Matt Kierkegaard, although today I will be speaking with Matt Kierkegaard and James Atkinson. And in fact, why don't we just get straight to them immediately? Matt, James, welcome. G'day, Prof. Hey, Prof. How are we? Good. Good. Yeah, no, things are things are really good up here. It's right in the uh, cultural festival season. So uh, and getting beer out to that. I had the French festival last week and this week I've got regional flavours. And uh, yeah, so things are going very, very well. Regional flavours, Matt, have been lucky enough to, to get up there for two of them. Who's involved this year in terms of brewers? Uh, in brewers, uh, let's see, we've got uh, Bolter is uh, making an appearance. We've also got... Uh, Fortitude Brewing, um, Four Hearts, and oh, you put put me on the spot. Um, is it Ballistics? Maybe it is Ballistic. Yes, thank you, Prof. Yeah, so Ballistic uh, as well, and then uh, we've also got one beer from the Charming Squire. So uh, eight beers from Independence, one beer from uh, Charming Squire, and uh, in a tent uh, pop up bar that's uh, dedicated to craft beer at a major food festival. So uh, you know, I think that's a really really exciting thing. And this is about, I think, the fifth or sixth year that the um the concept's been going now yeah i'm halfway to uh, old uh, to what long service leave with this one so which is good so uh, yeah no they've um you know they've got the usual celebrity chefs and master chef hosts and uh, various people in and around the the craft beer so craft beer is one component of it but yeah no it's been going for uh, six years now and i've been involved uh, since the inception so uh, yeah no really really excited and uh, you know good to see good beer uh, getting out um in you know not just in beer festivals yeah, and a little bit further south from where you are, Matt, in Brisbane, James, um, Zubru seems to be getting a lot of traction. It, it's certainly popping up in and around my um, social media feeds. Um, how's that tracking? Well, I think it's tracking pretty well. I mean, the organisers certainly, by their own admission, left it pretty late to, um, you know, to start getting the word out there. So that, I think that's why you're really seeing a pretty serious promotional effort now, because it's only a couple of weeks off. But yeah, I think it's, it promises to be a pretty unique event, just being where it is, Taronga Centre, overlooking the harbour with, you know, the noises of the zoo below you, um, great lineup of brewers. So I think it, I think it's got legs. And actually, later this week, I'm going to another festival down in Tassie, which is Willie Smith's Midwinter Festival. Um, not sure how much you guys know about that, but it's basically um, the European tradition of wassailing, which is in the middle of winter, near the winter solstice. You basically get together in the in the orchard and sort of have a bit of a, a party and a bit of a ritual to scare the evil spirits out of the orchard to ensure a bountiful harvest of apples um, the next year. And, and along with that, there's just a lot of really good um, Tassie food and, and Tassie beer, of course, as well. I think Moo Brew, Hobart and Churchill Brewery, which is the new one from the Hewan, are all going to be there and just really good music. And, yeah, it's a fantastic event. I went last year and really looking forward to going back again on Friday. Yeah, certainly um, Tassie's really kind of establishing itself as a bit of a, a, a cultural hub. I was reading this morning about uh, David Walsh, um, who's behind Mona, Who's about to open um, Hotel Mona as well, which or Homo <laughs> which for is, sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which, which uh, look, if anyone can get away with it, or well, Tassie can. But if anyone in Tassie can get away with it, David Walsh certainly can. Um, yeah, absolutely sensational um, festival, and the um, a great opportunity if you if you haven't heard about it, get into. I'm not sure if you go through Willie Smiths or if you just look up um, Hewan Midwinter Festival. Yeah. I think. Hewan Valley Midwinter Festival, you'll find it on Google without any trouble. Um, yeah. But yeah, you better get, get, out better there get and, skates on. Exactly. Get your pagan on. 
Nothing like a, a good bit of wassailing when it's about minus two degrees in the in the Huon Valley. Exactly. There's lots of fires around and everything though. So I found that and, and you know, some some nice um some nice drinks and probably some nice apple brandy and whiskey to keep you warm. So I didn't really find the cold too much of a problem last year. That's it. And I think the grand finale is sort of the um, igniting of the Burning Man. Yep, actually, yeah, that's that's Friday night. So yeah, that, that's I've already seen the pictures on um, Instagram of the man ready and waiting to be burnt. So yeah, it looks awesome. Uh, gents, we've got a fair bit of news to cover. So in the uh, interest of getting that done quickly, shall we crack on? James, very interesting story that you posted this week. Uh, Nine-month best before beer dates are ridiculous, says beer professor. Speaking of traction, that's that's gone, as the young kids would say, a little bit viral. Well, I'll actually see to Matt on this one because this was actually one that Matt um, uh, found Charlie Bamforth on a on a on a podcast from overseas and 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 wrote that story, and it's really taken off. My apologies, Matt. Oh, mate, no, yeah, well, I mean, James normally uh, writes all of the good stuff these days, so uh, that, that, that's an easy mistake to make. But, yeah, no, given that we've got, uh, and I think we've alluded to it over the last couple of shows, um, we are doing a podcast from the pub with Charlie in August, August 5th, so any of our Brisbane listeners can get along to that. Tickets are on the uh, Facebook page. But just in getting a, a feel for Charlie's new book, uh, I, I knew that he'd been on the Brewing Network um, podcast recently, so I just uh, was getting around and uh, listening to that while I did my chores on the weekend or no late last week and he uh geez I tell you what he laid into aging and best before dates and uh I was surprised that this hadn't been picked up before now and uh so I just wrote a story about it because it was a uh, you know germane to Charlie being here for the craft brewers conference and also for us but um yeah no Charlie's new book is looking at freshness and he had some really really harsh words to say and uh, basically you know if you store beer at 20 degrees you're going to get three months life out of it um, and then for every 10 degrees above that 20 degrees Celsius, you are shortening its lifespan by a third. And, uh, you know, if you put it in your car for a day, you basically have killed it. Now, some of the discussion um, has missed the nuance of that. Now, we're talking about beer that's fresh and, you know, as the brewer would want it to be tasting, not beer that is no longer drinkable. You are going to just start getting a lot of the off-flavour notes into it. But, yeah, no, he really came out and gave some very, very harsh words for it uh, that I think, you know, was relevant to the discussion that's been taking on and also very relevant to the Australian beer market. Um, I mean, what what do you guys think about some of the things that Charlie said? I think that... um you know, he raises a pretty, well, I mean, obviously, given his expertise, he's just looking at things purely from a scientific point of view. Um, I suppose what I'd be interested to know is, given the, the realities of the way that the marketplace works, um, you know, what does he suggest is a more reasonable time frame to be putting on as a best before date? Um, it's, 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 it's obviously nine months is completely arbitrary. And it's got no, no sort of grounding in science and what the beer is actually going to be like you know, after nine months. And I mean, really, when, and best before, even that term best before kind of seems like it's a pretty vague statement to be making about something anyway, because from what Charlie's sort of saying, the moment the beer leaves the brewery, it's in decline. And you can sort of slow that decline, but it's in decline from that point. So, I mean, you could probably argue that best before is best before it leaves the brewery. Um, so, so so the point I'm making is where, where do you where do you where do you draw that line and say, this is a reasonable um, best before date. That's the thing. The best before date is taking it, you know, a fairly objective view that, you know, the best you're ever going to experience it is as it leaves a brewery. But if you're looking at a beer that has the right balance between freshness and still 
some time in market, three months seems to be what he was uh, settling on. Um, and that's only if you're looking at after it fresh. And I think the what it highlights for me is that the age of industrial brewing, um, you know, with pasteurized beers and microfiltration and just really excellent in-house brewing techniques has given us the ability to have beer that we can put a longer shelf life on. But I think that's lulled us into a sense of security of forgetting that beer, you know, I think our expectations for shelf life have more gravitated around what the practical realities of the market are. And the less we focus on what is a perfect freshness, the further away we get from having good quality beer. And it raises a question that I think um, Luke Robertson raised recently is, you know, is our market geared around supporting craft beer in the marketplace? And I think that's ultimately what, what this uh, really highlights. Yeah, Matt, and you and I have often jokingly retold very often the story of the Forex brewery, which we'll get to in just a moment as well, who used to bring down their um, key clients, I guess, from uh, far north Queensland, who'd you know, be treated to a, a day in the brewery, a tour and lunch and fresh Forex bitter poured straight from the from the serving tanks. And um, some of the old guys are sort of known to, to kind of whisper to each other, there's something wrong with this stuff. It's just, it's not right. And and the, the fact is that, you know, they were so used to drinking beer that had uh, travelled poorly in unrefrigerated you know, flatbed trucks and then been stored in galvanised sheds until they were ready, that, that that became for them what the beer was supposed to taste like. So when they actually got it as it was intended, uh, to them it, it was wrong. And I guess we've we've all had stories of our mates or saying, oh, you know, Carlsberg or Stella or whatever, the stuff that's imported so much better. The stuff over here just doesn't just doesn't taste right. And so a lot of that perception of, of how beer should be is, is very subjective. And I think the key for me is that what we're missing is perhaps a batch date or a brewed on date. We can then start the conversation, start the education process from there saying, okay, if it's a barrel age, you know, Russian imperial stout, you might even be better off keeping this for a little while. If it's uh, Camden Town Hells, you might want to drink it straight away. I, I, look, I agree. And the thing that I found most interesting was the fact that there are apparently labels exist and they, they exist in the wine world that they change colour depending on the temperature at which the bottle has been stored. So it almost is like um, a DNA or, you know, it's just recording the history of that beer. So when you buy it, um, you've got a bit of an idea of how well it's been stored. Now, the point that Charlie made is whilst the technology is available, he doesn't see too many brewers embracing it because it's going to cause them problems in the marketplace because our uh, distribution system just isn't geared towards uh, looking after you know, beer in the logistics chain. And, and that in itself, he, he came back to and said, you know, there is so much focus on looking about the quality of your ingredients and the quality of your brewing process that if you don't have your distribution sorted, then you're wasting your time on everything else. And that, to me, was a critical point that Charlie was making. Yeah, and, and look, at the risk of saying the same thing over and over and over again, drink fresh, drink local. Exactly. I, I don't uh, know what Dan Murphy's would say if... Well, I don't know what Dan Murphy's would say if um, you said to them that as an industry we're proposing to move to three-month best-before dates. What do you have to say about that? Well, but that's not what that's not what we're proposing. Well, no, I mean, the point that Charlie was making was that beer is at its best earlier than three months. Um, what Prof is saying is that I think the most objective standard is you have a brewed on date and then let the consumers decide. Right, yeah. But obviously, uh, I mean, Dan Murphy's, I don't know if you caught it, it wasn't in the news rundown, but Dan Murphy's has started a program this week with Green Beacon, which was the champion small brewery at the AIBAs, where you can order Green Beacon beer online through Dan Murphy's and it is delivered fresh from the brewery in Queensland. So Dan Murphy's obviously at some level recognises that fresh is best with craft beer and they are revising 
creating their model and they're piloting the system where you can buy beer through them, they deliver it, they pick it up from Green Beacon and deliver it to you. So they're not actually warehousing it. And to me, that shows that, you know, this message about freshness is getting through. And even, you know, big companies that arguably perpetuate some of the problems with um, shelf life are recognizing that they need to change their beer models to get it fresh so yeah i mean dan murphy should be applauded for that and I, you know, i'm uh, trying to find out a little bit more about the story cool uh, watch this space um forex closing down map what's going to happen is the queensland <laughs> there'll be a riot won't there mate i'll tell you what there almost would have been it was big news in brisbane and even just sharing that news flash that came through on facebook generated a lot of traffic it sounds like it's just a bit of shenanigans between the brewery and the unions where they're airing a little bit of dirty laundry to force the business's hand um you know on one hand you've got a brewery sitting in the middle of um, a rapidly expanding city on some very, very prime real estate. And it's a little bit landlocked. It's difficult to get trucks in and out. And I think ideally they would like to move. But you've also got a brewery that is so deeply embedded in the local culture that for a long time the brewery, and it may even be, I haven't picked up a can of Forex for a while, um, the brewery was drawn on the can of every uh, you know bottle of Forex and stubby of Forex that came out. But the thing that was most surprising about this story is just how much the volumes at Milton have fallen and how much Forex gold is made interstate something that they've not really been keen to talk too much about before now because of that strong association with queensland yeah, well cub down here quite a few years ago realized that prime real estate on the edge of the city uh was worth a lot more to them um in someone else's hands uh and and moving your brewing operations uh well in in cb's case you know mostly to up your way matt Tiatla. Um, is the same thing going to happen, but perhaps uh, they keep the iconic neon sign somewhere there as a, as a bit of a beacon, but sell it off as you know, apartment and commercial space? I, I guess so, but you saw what they did with, uh, was it Swan, James, a couple of years ago, that, you know, Swan's volumes fell so low that they don't even brew, you know, WA's iconic uh, brands in WA anymore. They moved it to Bogues in Tasmania, and then I think it's back in South Australia. So West End, I think, yeah. West End. So, yeah, it just shows that once volumes get to a certain point, you know, as much as these guys love talking about their history and their, um, you know, their heritage, it doesn't matter too much when when, uh, dollars are concerned. Um, And that's just a legitimate business decision. Yeah. I mean, I suppose with Forex, the big driver of its decline over the last few years has been um, Great Northern, which seems to have absolutely decimated the brand. And one of the things that emerged when um, I went digging around to find previous um, records of the disputes that had occurred at the Forex Brewery was that stat that um, was apparently in a line document which said that in 2014-2015 they were 13 million litres down on the previous year at the Milton Brewery. So that's a pretty amazing decline and their projections were that that was going to only continue and possibly even at a greater rate. So that just sort of shows you the sort of volume that they're shedding from that brewery. And Matt, as iconic a brand and everything that it is, is the um, the physical bricks and mortar presence of the brewery important like do people go and visit there do they go and buy their beer from there do they go and do brewery tours there no they don't really and they do have a alehouse tour and apparently (laughs) one of the funny things is that the forex brewery gets caught up in its own contract disputes because you say you've got the alehouse which is fishing line casting difference from suncorp stadium or lang park but when lion had the porridge rights at suncorp stadium Apparently, there was a problem with them promoting their own alehouse because that was seen as taking volumes away from sales. You know, if, if they got a good crowd before the game, 
that had a material detriment to Suncorp Stadium. And so they were caught up in their own tap contract uh, disputes where they were in competition with themselves. And so they've always had a hard time promoting their alehouse. But yet having a consumer-facing brewery, as a, a term that we love talking about, Prof, is very, very important to people interacting with the brand. So they, they have found it a little bit hard, but it is on a main artery into the city. You'd pretty much, if you're coming in from the western suburbs, you drive past it. Those big four X's, um, you know, dominate the skyline. So it is very, very um, prominent there anyway, Prof. So people know it. And if it wasn't there, um, I, I think that that would pretty much indicate, you know, the, the death of regionalised, you know, mainstream beer. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, when you're talking about prime real estate like that is, that when money talks, tradition walks eventually. Mm. And and there's no such thing as a as a state brand anymore. VB has been a national brand for a long time. Tui's doesn't seem to be much of a brand at all anymore. James, do you know much about Tui's Blue or Tui's New? Um, oh, look, you know, I'm sure it's still got pockets of, of strength, but it's certainly not a beer I see around um, in my parts too often these days. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, New beer on the market coming into or coming into sharp focus, and we've um, spoken to John Selton uh, a little while ago. And Brick Lane is the the new brewery who are going to open with around about nine and a half million dollars worth of kit and a, a fifty litre brew house to to start with. And we revealed on Australian Brews News this week their all star cast. Yeah, um, this has been something that's been rumoured and talked about a little bit in the industry over the last few months. And it's fair to say that I've been uh, chasing these guys. Um, to speak to them and we actually ran a story in April where some of the initial you know details came to light about some of the the identities that were involved with the company and then this week I actually managed to get hold of Paul Bowker who is the co-founder of the company known as Brick Lane Brewing um, and had a chat with him about the plans for the brewery which is going to be located um, at, in Dandenong South on a 5,000 square meter site that they've secured there they're going to be building everything from scratch that in itself is a $3.2 million development application that they've just lodged with the council. And as you say, they've got John Selton on board. Um, he's back in his old stomping ground at um, Hawker's brewing two beers um, that, have just, that are on the market now, a Hellas Lager and a Pale Ale. And they're hoping to commission their own brewery early next year. But it was really interesting chatting to Paul just because I think when you know the details around an organization like this are a little bit shadowy and no one really wants to talk to you you kind of make certain assumptions about their motives and you know how much knowledge they've actually got of the industry and all that kind of stuff but then when i spoke with paul yesterday and discovered that on their board are going to be um you know the former managing director of lion new zealand uh, who, who worked at Lion. He started out at Spates Brewery in sales 27 years ago and then finished as um, MD of Lion NZ. And so that's Peter Keane. There's also Roger Smith, who ran, um, you know, Independent Distillers, which got taken over by Asahi eventually. Um, there's another, among their shareholder base, there's another bloke who was at um, SAB Miller for many years. So there's just a lot of, um, you know, serious drinks industry expertise a lot of capital's been raised they would have a very good read on you know the financials that they need to meet in order to deliver or, you know what what price they need to sell kegs at what sort of volumes they need to reach in order to get a return on this huge amount of capital they've pulled together so it's just it's a very sophisticated you know outfit that they're putting together and it's going to be really interesting to see what happens it will and certainly you know some 
serious muscle behind it um, in terms of the you know the names of, of some of the non-executive directors. Uh, but also, I think the, the the thing that gives me the most confidence in it is it's being headed up by a bloke called Bart Campbell, who's I guess you know and declare an interest. I'm a long you know day one Melbourne Storm member, um, and and Bart is the current chairman of the of the Melbourne Storm. And just in terms of business now, I think he's obviously setting up people in the positions, you know, getting the, the best available people in the in the positions to do the job, which I think stands them in pretty good stead going forward. But it's interesting to see already some of the comments that they're, they're not craft. They haven't produced a beer yet, and yet they're not craft. Well, they have produced two beers, but... Um, they have so now, the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, there'll who, be... Who's saying that, know, Prof? Drill, just, uh... On Facebook, there was someone who made the comment about, you know, it's not craft because of, you know, the amount of money involved or whatever it is. And, and you know, there's whatever whatever craft means. We don't, we don't want to get into that. But maybe a company that's owned by the likes of Eddie Maguire in a small shareholding sense might not fit some people's definition of craft but um i don't know i'll just be interested to try the beers and it's nice so that- now so now people want to define an independent brewery that's owned by a dickhead is now not a craft brewery <laughs> so uh, so so that's how um we're, we're defining it these days is it it could be <laughs> okay okay that, that, might, that might just be a small isolated um example okay I, I think we should personality profile any brewery owner before we uh, come up with a definition of craft and there should be a uh, fitness that's it. We've often defined it by their marketing slash advertising strategy, which leads us nicely into um, a chat about your favourite brewery, who, um, whilst they may have lost the rights to use the name of the king, are hoping to become of themselves kings of the craft beer industry. And I speak, of course, of our friends Brewdog. Yeah, yeah. Look, this was one that came out at the end of June. The story is Brewdog will dramatically expand its international business by pumping funds into markets such as France, Australia and Asia, as the brewers founders aim to be the largest craft brewer in the world. And again, this has nothing to do with definitions of craft, but I just think it highlights when people get really caught up in the minutiae of craft um, that you can figure out a little bit of some of the, the broader trends that influence a market and you know I, I came back from London and uh, had a little bit of a chat about the loss of diversity and the homogeneity that's creeping in and you can come to Australia and have really beautiful American style pale ales and India pale ales and saisons that have no sense of regionality you can get the same thing in America you can get the same thing in London um, and there aren't many places that have a distinctive culture and, and I noticed it uh, when I was in Italy last year that you'd be walking along and Italy actually does have quite a distinctive avant-garde brewing culture and then you're walking uh, you know down the streets of Florence and suddenly you come to a brew dog bar that excuse the uh, saying but stands out like dog's balls because it is just incongruous and it just struck me as being you know as, as much as we love the beer and as much as the, the beer is different from mainstream lager there is still a McDonald's element to what brew dog are doing um, because they are just putting down these cookie cutter template craft beer bars that have no sense of region they've got no sense of locality they are just doing to craft beer exactly what you know mcdonald's did to hamburgers or you know guzman and gomez are doing to uh, mexican it's just a safe easy thing that is you know uh, i want to do a hard rock style logo for brew dog because that's effectively what they're doing so you're going brew dog london brew dog florence brew dog sydney and good luck to them and it's business but we need to realise that that's where consolidation of industry start. On BrewDog in Australia, are you also aware that they've appointed their top dog in this market? I'm not. Who's that? Uh, Zara Pryor, who um, left Stone and Wood recently. She was their head of engagement and she worked for um, BrewDog 
in the UK this week announced that she had taken, and this was the job title that she put on LinkedIn, Top Dog um, at BrewDog. I didn't see that. And um, I gave her a call this week and just said, look, I've been trying to get hold of BrewDog and find out what their plans are in Australia. And she said, look, right now, really, there is nothing to say except that I've taken this job. I'm about to go off to Scotland, um, spend an extensive period of time with the brewery there and, you know, to meet and discuss their plans for Australia. And she's going to be back in August and hopefully we'll have some more information about what BrewDog's going to be doing. There you go. I missed that. Zara's fantastic. I had a lot to do with her at um, Stone and Wood. And before she joined Stone and Wood, she was BrewDog James's uh, exec. I'm not sure what the title was, but essentially his uh, executive assistant and uh, very much in charge of their culture as they went through their really, really rapid uh, formative stages. So that's an interesting development. It doesn't change my um, view about anything that you know, has those sorts of global plans. But uh, yeah, it's really exciting news for Zara. Definitely. Yeah, and uh, it will be interesting to see where that one goes. The only thing I would say, Matt, is that I imagine BrewDog bars as as a bit of a beacon for uh, local beer. So if I'm walking into into Florence, I don't know where to go to get good local beer. If I saw a BrewDog bar, I'd be fairly confident that I could go in there and get, as well as the BrewDog beers, that I would be able to get something local on one of their guest taps. Am I am I reading that incorrectly? Because I, I just think the analogy with McDonald's is wrong because McDonald's is a beacon for sameness um, wherever you go. I, 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 I don't expect to go that... to McDonald's in France and get you know, a local burger made from a small independent burger joint, whereas I would from BrewDog Bar. And I also think that BrewDog make a much better um, beer than Guzman and Gomez do a taco as well. Yeah. And again, I mean, look, no analogy is perfect, but there is still that when you're doing exactly the same thing globally, you, you are creating a standard that is just never excellence like you know you're still appealing to a certain audience and the bigger you get the more generic you have to become and look it's not the perfect knowledge as i said but it's exactly that mentality that you were talking about that you know if you're walking around you don't know florence Brewdog takes away both the risk but it also takes away the serendipity of discovery. And that's why, you know, if you drive through any country town in Queensland, at least, I'm sure it'd be the same in New South Wales or Victoria, that the local coffee shop or the local pie shop or the local fish and chip shop aren't there anymore. Because when you're driving through a town, there is always a risk in stopping off at the local coffee shop that you may get a shitty coffee. And so you go to the chain and in Queensland, it's something like the coffee club. And you know you're never going to get a brilliant coffee, but you're going to get a guaranteed standard of average that takes the risk out for you and you know whilst we're still in the early days of craft beer and brew dogs expansion i still think that there is that risk that when you have one dominant chain and you see it in pubs in britain you see it in you know coffee in in australia you see it just about everywhere that once you get a certain size to keep growing and there is pressure on a business to keep growing that's when you start making compromises on just how avant-garde you're willing to be Mm. Will be interesting to see, and um, James, I'm sure, will attempt to catch up with Zara uh, and get her take on it once uh, some news is available. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, now, Matt, apropos of your chat with, um, and a very good chat, by the way, with uh, Jasper Cuppage from Camden Town Brewery last week in um, Beer as a Conversation, uh, and we follow up with an article that we found in the Guardian business section where uh, I guess the, the independent brewers are, are fighting back. Yeah, prof. It was just uh, something that popped up in my newsfeed um, that we've seen the Brewers Association in the States launch their independence logo. We've seen the uh, 
Craft Beer Industry Association in Australia, rebrand Independence, and now the, uh, well, the, I think it's the Society of Independent Brew, or the... Yeah, CBA, Association in the UK. I'm just trying to think of what the uh, S stands for. Um, I think it's Society, Society of Independent Brewers, Brewers Association, yeah. Ah, okay, Independent, Society of Independent... Nah, it wouldn't be a society and an association, would yeah. it? That's what I was thinking. But SIBA uh, has launched a very similar campaign uh, of independence. And, uh, you know, you choose a big target. And that seems to be Camden, which was doing very well, has grown to a certain scale and has been bought out by uh, ABI. Um, so, yeah, no, I just thought that was an interesting thing that we do seem to see this move towards independence sweeping the country uh, or sweeping the, the globe. Um, and that seems to be the way. And it's a really positive way for brewers to mark themselves out and create a point of difference from mainstream brands. And it's obviously something that's got big brewers worried because we have, as we talked about last week, seen the ABI purchased craft breweries hit out against it, you know, lashing out against uh, what it means. Um, so it, there's obviously a bit of a raw nerve there um, for the big brewers. Um, but then again, as we've already remarked in this program, when you've got a what is an independent of global brewers a brewery that starts up that is well resourced and then has certain personalities involved, people want to start shit canning them as well. So, you know, th- th- there is a certain amount of arbitrary snark about who's in and who's out of the cool kids club. Does it change though, Matt, if Camden Town Brewery were bought by uh, Pacific Brands or the investors came from outside of the beer industry? Transpose Goose Island, same thing, rather than being bought by AB InBev, if they were bought by, you know, a brick manufacturer or, a, you know, clothing retailer, whatever it might be, somebody just comes in with, with money, does that change the perception? To, to some extent, I, I, I think it does because... You know, like if you've got a venture capital firm buying into a brewery, a venture capital firm is by definition looking to get the best return it can on investment, which is very different from a small independent brewery who are looking to, you know, carve out, you know, a lifestyle business that feeds them and their family and their employees. Now, that's not a value judgment, or I don't think it's a value judgment. It's just looking at the practical realities of what the motivation behind the business running the brewery is. That said, my understanding of why independents came to define the IBA in Australia was around the degree of control they exercise. And the big two breweries exercise a vast degree of control um, over the, the market. And even a brewery that's owned by you know, a, a venture capital firm in Australia that may be very well resourced and you know, secure a lot of tap points quickly, still exercises a very, very small degree of control over the market. So it's an arbitrary uh, decision, um, and it seems to be a, you know, a fairly good one in terms of advocacy purposes. Um, we, we, we need to remember that you can't look into the brewer's heart or the business owner's heart and tell what their true intentions are. And short of being able to do that, all of the definitions are arbitrary, and they come around what the association is trying to achieve. Yeah, no, fair call, well put. Um, now, before we get into the mailbag, which I have to say is bulging this week with two fat letters, um, we thought uh, uh, as part of Radio Brews News, we might introduce a new segment, uh, which we'll call Snark. Matt, what's in a name? Yeah, but oh, um, it used to be called Prof's Potshot, but I just wanted to throw something in that every now and then, you know, we've got something we want to get off our chest and it's been something that's been irritating me for a while. And listeners, I acknowledge up the front. So if, if you want to reply, if you want to send letters go for your life uh, about this topic but just don't say look you're a boring old man because i know that this is old man snark right from the outset but you know prof i've just sort of noticed that there's been a tendency in craft beer reps and you know some of the you know hip young uh, beer distributors 
to refer to what they sell as booze. Um, and I know that it's got a certain irony laden with it, but especially when it's often tautologically paired with the word quality. So, you know, we sell quality booze or, you know, we're in the market for quality booze. But even used ironically, booze cheapens the perception of good beer by devaluing it from being something special. Um, no one wants beer to be stuffy. No one wants it to be pretentious. But at the same time, craft beer, small beer is expensive to make. And the more you devalue it by calling it booze, it makes it hard to demand that premium price. And, uh, you know, and the, the reason I raise it today is I was reading an article and it was on the English The Sun, which is probably one of the world's worst newspapers, you know, news of the world style things. And it just automatically refers to beer as booze. And uh, so the sum of my snarky argument is that any word that the sun refers to uh, craft beer as is probably a good one to avoid for uh, people who want to see the value in the uh, segment maintained. Even from my young perspective, I actually completely agree with with you on that. And I mean, I think it's I think my viewpoint comes partly from, you know, when I used to work at The Shout covering the um, the drinks industry uh, much more broadly and being very aware of the sorts of pressures that alcohol generally is under from, you know, health campaigners and the like. Um, and I think that people in the craft beer sector, because it's still relatively so small, are sort of a bit blissfully unaware of some of the broader pressures that there are on the industry. The people in that part of the industry sort of fly under the radar and, and leave it to the big guys to fight those battles with the likes of you know, fair and those anti-alcohol bodies. And words like booze, you know, that just says, it's just basically the drug of alcohol. It just, it just, it's just kind of cheapening it. It's the, it's the same reason why, um, you know, a lot of companies now are moving away from the word liquor because it just, it just talks yep. about the drug. It doesn't, you know, drinks is kind of the word that people are moving towards now. And actually your comments reminded me of a um, column that I read by Max Allen, um, where he had this to say. He said, I was passing a country pub in New South Wales the other day when a big sign above the drive through bottle shop stopped me dead in my tracks. Quick, cheap grog, it shouted in huge block capitals. And there you go, a perfect distillation of so much that's wrong with Australia's alcohol culture, production and consumption. He says, grog, such an insidious word, an ochre catch-all for alcohol, ignorant to the rich cultural associations behind each type of drink. And he goes on, but I mean, I think grog is another word that we don't really use anymore. Booze um, is just a word that I just don't really think has any place to be describing, you know, what we want to talk about, the positive attributes of craft beer. Um, and I just think that the people that are using it are a bit ignorant about some of these very real regulatory pressures that ultimately will impact everyone in the alcohol industry. Mate, very well put. Could I get you to put that in the show notes? Because I'd love to post that uh, Max Allen article because uh, it, it's really good and I'd like to take craft beer out of the Bintang t-shirt. No worries. Totally, totally. <laughs> we totally agreed on that. We've um, found a we've found a united position in spite of <laughs> everything. In, in, fi- in, fi- in spite of everything that separates us. <laughs> That's it. And look, in the same way that uh, I think the three of us get annoyed with the big end of brewing, and particularly their marketing departments referring to beer as the liquid, I think, yeah, the young whippersnappers referring to it as booze is, is just as bad. So nicely put, Matt. Nice snark, and uh, hopefully that's something we can continue in future editions of Radio Brews News. Uh, now, on to our mailbag.
We have a letter this week from a regular listener and a good friend of mine, Will Zebel, who is a, a top little bloke who works over at the Crafty Pint. Uh, acknowledgement there. Um, uh, probably Australia's second best uh, source of opinion, news and information on the independent brewery scene. And Will says, I also wanted to add that I'm really enjoying the new format. Depending on the week I'm having, I can't always listen to too many podcasts, so it's good being able to catch up on the news and then hear a more timeless interview at other times. And Will also drew us to uh, an article on good beer hunting, which follows up on our recent discussions about uh, stone beer and freshness. Yeah, great to hear from Will. And uh, yeah, I thought it was worth commenting because we don't make a big song and dance announcing our uh, new initiatives, but we have obviously split the podcast in pretty much for the reasons that Will outlined. And uh, yeah, so it's nice to know that, well, we've had no hate mail about the changes and it's nice that uh, that seems to be the way that people have received it. And a uh, great article. Um, I caught up with the fellow who wrote that article um, when I was in, in London. Really, really exciting young uh, English beer writer. And it was an interesting article looking at Greg Cook trying to justify some of the changes that he's you know some of the compromises that they've made in the way that they distribute beer um, that we talked about last week so yeah I thought I'd throw that in and Matt if we can slip in a, a quick little postcard from Matt um, numbers have we got some numbers that that are worth giving to our listeners in terms of how the the split going into um, Beer's Conversation and Radio Brews News' two separate podcasts is going. Yeah, interestingly, it seems to be running at the reverse of what I thought. I thought people would be more interested in the conversations that we have uh, than the three of us uh, chatting away, but the downloads are roughly double for the Radio Brews News than they are for Beer's Conversation. But I think Beer and Conversation will gradually keep ticking over, as uh, Will said. You know, it's it's very timely listening to the discussion about the news. Um, but yeah, so I, I thought that was an interesting inversion of what I expected. Yeah, and so we might keep an eye on the numbers and uh, we're also obviously keen to get your feedback as listeners uh, as to whether you think the new format works or whether we uh, uh, can tweak it even more. Hopefully, you know, Matt Snark, well, not necessarily Matt Snark, but Snark as a, a special sort of insertion into each episode will uh, we'll draw a bit of comment. Um, we welcome your feedback. From Mike, we also have received this letter this week. Mike says, thanks for your work and interesting podcasts. Also, thanks to your associates. I guess that's us, Matt. James and I. Yeah. As a newish home brewer, I'm finding all the industry news and conversations with the world's best brewers fascinating beyond expectation. Bang. Uh, I never thought the ins and outs of the industry issues would be enthralling. And while a little ashamed to let a hobby get the best of me, I'm grateful for all your calm analysis and opinions. Perhaps I could quit my job and open a brewery in an overcrowded market. All right for it. No. Anyway, an issue which has been mentioned by you. That's that's Mike's words, not mine. Anyway, an issue which has been mentioned by you guys a few times is the quality of beer after the long trek from the US to the Aussie consumer and the associated demands of brewers for chilled transport. I can't help but think I'm missing something. Aren't hops a preservative? Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm under the impression that the whole point of an IPA was to preserve beer for the six to 12 month journey in heat of beer from England to India. So why is everyone worried about a few weeks in sometimes chilled transport? After some research, I can only conclude that the hop forward beers in question lose their delicate floral aroma quickly that these beers aren't using hops for preservation but for flavor which diminishes quickly especially at the rates used i can imagine a heavily dry hopped and unfiltered beer might turn to an ugly rotten vegetative mess is this the concern uh, even if it is what of the english just a change in demand of quality over the years pressures of a modern market fwiw i agree drink fresh drink local what's fwiw man for what it's worth got it of course um for what it's worth i agree drink fresh drink local interested in your thoughts uh, no iTunes reviews this week, by the way, guys. So um, feel free to slot those in, uh, help people find us if you think it's um, something that they might be interested in. Matt, your thoughts? 
look, I think he's nailed it on the head. You know, if you go back a thousand years, before we had refrigeration and beer was a source of making water drinkable, um, as well as a source of the lovely feelings that come with the uh, mild consumption of alcohol, hops were found to give you a longer life to your beer by keeping the microbes at bay and uh, keeping the water drinkable. Whilst you know the, the, the much-touted IPA story is a little bit distorted, the hops did preserve it, but there is a difference between keeping the drinkability of the liquid and having the flavour-forward components and the fresh flavour components that hops bring at, at their best. So hops are a preservative. They will keep the liquid drinkable for much longer, but the hops also, the really pleasant attributes that hops bring that we drink beer for now, um, that we, you know, we have uh, clear running water delivered in our taps to our homes, that uh, drops out. So he, he's right on both counts, and his uh, summation was uh, perfect for what it's worth. And I doubt that, you know, the hops that they were using, I doubt the hops that they were using back in the day um, in the pale ales that were being exported that gave IPA its name ever had the same sort of aromatic qualities that, you know, people are actually deliberately seeking these days and crafting beers based on those particular qualities that they then want to preserve. So really the IPA today has nothing to do with the IPA that gave it its name. So, yeah. No, that's it. It shares the, the same three letters, and that's about it yeah. in terms of its its modern iteration. Spot uh, on. Yeah. Well, guys, uh, I think that's probably about enough for this episode of Radio Brews News. Please keep your letters and cards coming in. Matt, have you got the address there? Uh, I do. Producer at brewsnews.com.au. Uh, they'll get through to Freya, and she'll uh, share them with the rest of us, and we can discuss on next week's episode. Excellent. Now, once we finish here, we expect that you'll then pop over to Beer as a Conversation. And this week, James, we've got an interview that uh, you recorded during your time over at the World Beer Cup. Yeah, this is um, one we've had in the can for a little while now. Neil Whitty is the U.S. Brewers Association's quality ambassador. So he replaced Dick Cantwell, who was out here at the conference last year, I think it was, for the, the Craft Brewers Conference in Australia. So Neil has replaced Dick, and he's got a really interesting background um, and a really interesting CV. He is the founder of a consultancy called Craft Quality Solutions, uh, which provides field quality analysis services to brewers, distributors, and retailers. So Basically, Neil will do things like basically go around to all of a brewery's main accounts and taste the beer in all those accounts and then give them feedback on how their beer is actually tasting out in the market. And he believes that field quality, as he calls it, is an issue that or is an area of beer quality that brewers are not giving anywhere near enough attention to. So we discussed that. Neil's also a master cicerone he's one of only 13 people that have made it up to that top tier of the cicerone certification program so he talks about what went into that and you know how many times he had to sit the exam in order to pass so yeah look you know he's just a really interesting guy it's a really interesting chat so i hope people enjoy it thanks for that james and uh yeah you can catch up with james's interview with neil on beer is a conversation or wherever you get your good podcasts from uh gents it's been a hoot thank you very much for joining us again thank you prof uh, we must do this again sometime how about next week? Look, let's lock it in right now, shall we? Guys, thanks very much for joining us. And to you listeners, thank you very much for putting up with us. And we'll see you all again next week. And we're out.